1: My mailbag question is, have you ever looked into competing on The Amazing Race? You'd both be so much fun to watch, and I'm betting you'd also do well. What do you think, Matt? The
0: Amazing Race? (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: We're quitters. (laughs) I'm not sure we would make it to the start. We also get distracted easily.
1: This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith.
0: And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode, where we answer questions from listeners about the national parks, road trips, camping, hiking trails, gear, and other travel-related topics.
1: In this episode, we'll discuss what essentials you need to get started camping, plus the existence of some secret nps passport stamps
0: we're also going to be talking about important details you need to know regarding yosemite's day use reservation system carlsbad caverns big room reservation system and glacier national parks hiker shuttle program
1: that's a lot yeah (laughs) and we'll share some thoughts about identifying treacherous hikes in the national parks all this and more coming up next
0: Okay, folks, Happy New Year. This is our first episode of 2024.
1: I know. I feel like there should be fireworks going off or something. That was last night. Okay. I know. It's time for New Year's resolutions and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, go to the gym the next three days.
1: Three days? Is yeah. that it for you? No. <laughs> it's a three-day resolution. Like I was looking at you. <laughs> I did go to Costco this morning, and... It's so funny, you know. The minute you walk in, both sides of the aisle are lined with vitamins and protein powders and and weight loss supplements and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, everyone's starting their New Year's resolutions. What what's your New Year's resolution this year, Karen?
1: Well, I have the same one you do. Okay, so admittedly, ours are really lame. But <laughs> the first one we decided on is, you know, neither one of us drink enough water every day. What is it you're supposed to have? Sixty four ounces? I
0: have no idea.
1: Okay, well. I think it's 64 ounces, eight, eight ounce glasses a day. But the thing is, if you don't keep track of it, how do you know by the end of the day? How, how would you know? how I much I drink water on you
0: average have? three ounces of water. I a know. Day.
1: <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> so do I. So what we're doing now we have these on our desk right here. We have these big Nalgene bottles that are what 32 ounce Nalgene bottles. And so we both decided that we would fill up two of them each. And that's how much water we have to drink every day.
0: So if there's a lot of breaks in this podcast episode recording, that's because, <laughs> because this is why I don't drink water. I can't go anywhere. I
1: know. That's not well, 10 is, feet from a bathroom. Yeah, it is kind of an issue. Okay, so there's that one. And I know that's like people have these um, very lofty goals. Um, and we're drink, just going
0: to drink water. Yeah, we're just
1: going to drink water. But the other one we're going to do, and I think we probably do it most years anyway, but we're going to do the 52 Hike Challenge.
0: Yeah, I want to know what constitutes a hike.
1: Okay, that's a really good question. There is an official website. There's an official organization called the 52 Hike Challenge, and I signed up for that. They have several different packages. Um, There's a free one. Then there is a starter package that costs $25 and a standard package that costs $60 and so on. Wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. You have to pay to do the challenge?
1: Well, yes, but the paid versions include things like stickers, a patch, a medal when you finish the the challenge. I don't, there's like a printable journal and, and a lot of other things.
0: Yeah, so okay, <laughs> I thought of this idea. I have this idea that you should drink 64 ounces of water every day. Everyone needs to send me five bucks. No, actually, sixty four dollars. And then you can be part of the challenge, too.
1: The 64-ounce water challenge. <laughs>
0: 64 stickers, each with a number on it.
1: But, you know, uh, I think the 52-hike challenge is a really great idea. And, you know, it's motivated a lot of people to get outside on a regular basis, to be part of a community with a common goal.
0: Yeah, like we all sit around and drink 64 ounces of water.
1: Okay, Stop. <laughs> Now, Matt, you asked about what constitutes a hike. So the 52 Hike Challenge folks say um, it's a one-mile minimum walk. But, you know, of course, everyone can set their own hiking goal depending on what's comfortable for them. For us, a hike would constitute at least five miles, right?
0: That's how far our mailbox is from (laughs) our front door. So if I get the mail every day, we should move on.
1: Okay. I just want to say one more thing. So we're going to keep track of our hikes. The goal is to do one a week, right? Then you have 52 hikes. But there are a lot of weeks, you know, maybe you're sick, maybe you're traveling, whatever, that you're not going to be able to do a hike. So you can do... You can do four hikes in a week. It's just supposed to be an average of 52 hikes a year. So we're going to keep track and see. Um, The other thing I did want to mention, you know, for people who don't live in areas with a lot of hiking trails, and and so maybe 52 hikes sounds daunting, there's another thing I heard people do. And so, you know, it's 2024, so it's called 24 in 24, and that would be 24 hikes.
0: So you just keep lowering the bar?
1: Well, sure, because that's only two a month. Yeah. <laughs> now next year it would be twenty five and twenty five and the next year, so you know, wow. it would get progressively harder. But I think it's a great way to um to sort of keep track of how much you're hiking and you know, maybe it's motivating to, to people.
0: It could be. Yeah. 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 Well, is that what our episode is about today?
1: No, that has nothing <laughs> to do with it. I, I didn't think so.
0: <laughs> we are on line one of a seventeen page Outline, so I'm a little concerned that this will also be the first episode in 2025 (laughs) if we're going at this rate.
1: Okay, all right, moving on. So a couple of notes. I wanted to follow up on our recent Southern Arizona episode, which was episode number 144. We had a couple of people who wrote in to tell us about one particular place that we missed as we were talking about all the great places to see in Southern Arizona. Guess what that was, Matt?
0: It was, I bet it was a cave. (laughs) We didn't miss it.
1: It was Karchner Caverns State Park, and the people who wrote in said this is an amazing state park. It's about 50 minutes southeast of Tucson, and I looked at their website. They have a couple of different cave tours. There is camping in the state park, and they also had some really cute-looking cabins to rent.
0: That's great. I'll stay in the cabin. My New Year's resolution is to not go into any caves. (laughs) How's that?
1: All right. Well, I guess I'll just need to find somebody else to go with. (laughs) Okay. Write in if you would like to go to Karchner Caverns (laughs) State Park. Park with me.
0: No, I'll be outside. I'll be outside the hole.
1: All right. Add that to your list when you're going to Southern Arizona because apparently it's a very great park.
0: Okay, what other updates do we have? You're always good about having updates.
1: Well, yeah. and Okay, so this one is really important for anyone who is going to Yosemite National Park from April 13th through October 27th. I think we mentioned before that Yosemite is going back to their day-use reservation requirement, and they open up on January 5th.
0: Wow, what I know. day is this episode coming out? It's <laughs> the three, fourth. Fourth. Okay.
1: Here's the deal. If you missed the announcement, this is what's happening in Yosemite from April 13th through June 30th. You need a reservation on Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays from 5am to 4pm. Then in the busiest summer months, July 1st through August 16th, you need a reservation every single day. And from August 17th through October 27th, once again, they're going to go back to Saturdays, Sundays and holidays. And again, this is 5am to 4pm. So if you're going to try to skirt that and go into the park before 5am, that's going to be an early wake up call.
0: They're trying to catch all the early birds.
1: Yeah. So they're going to go up for grabs on recreation.gov January 5th at 8 a.m. The park website says reservations will be gone almost immediately. So before 8 a.m. when you're on recreation.gov, make sure that you have an account already. You're logged in and you're ready to go. They will release some additional reservations seven days before your arrival date. So if you miss this first batch that's going up on January fifth You can also try again seven days before you go.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You should create your recreation.gov account ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. And also all the information's on the Yosemite website.
1: During that busy season, I believe your reservation is good for three days. And so there, there are a lot of details that you want to know about. So yeah, check out the Yosemite National Park Service website.
0: Okay. I think that's it for our updates. Yes. Let's get into our mailbag questions. Karen, what is our first question?
1: Okay, this question comes from Jason, and he wrote, My wife and I decided that 2024 is the year we start camping with our two young children. We live in an area with a lot of state parks, and it seems like a fun thing to do on the weekends instead of just hanging around the house. Can you explain the basics of what we need to get started the bare bones so to speak.
0: Yeah, we've been there, haven't we? We have. Yeah. Th- <laughs> and when you're starting out, you, you want to spend the least amount of money until you know that you actually want to do this again.
1: Exactly, because you know when you look at all the camping gear that's available like if you look at REI, you know.com, my goodness, the list is endless, absolutely endless, and it can really add up. It can be very expensive if you start buying all this stuff.
0: Yeah, and the equipment that they sell, like at REI and the other other places, it's really good. Yes. You know, and it's worth the money if you're going to do it a lot. However, you don't really know how many times you're going to go camping. And a lot of times you get excited about it. You think you're going to camp, you know, 10 times in a year and it ends up being once every other year. Whatever. So... Some of the gear, you might want to start with kind of the starter versions.
1: Right. Obviously, the most important, the first thing you absolutely are going to have to have is a tent.
0: We would suggest borrow someone else's.
1: Yes. However, Matt, I was thinking about that. If you borrow a tent from your Uncle Charlie, who's had you know his tent in his attic for 40 years, you do not want to do that. Tents have come a long way. Remember when we were kids, you had the big heavy canvas tents. And I mean, it's a completely different ball game now. They are a million times better, more functional, lighter weight than they used to be.
0: That That's a good point. You want to borrow a tent from somebody who actually uses it, knows how to use it, knows all the pieces are there. And absolutely, if you're going to borrow a tent, actually, e- even if you're going to buy one, you got to set it up in the backyard first before you go out camping to make sure you have all the pieces
1: Well, right, and that you know how to set it up before you're in a campsite. It could be, you know, starting to rain or whatever. The other thing we would suggest, too, is so there are four of you, right? And you could look at four-person tents. But if it's not much more money, if you buy a five-person tent, you will love having that little extra room.
0: Yeah, I don't know how they uh, figure out the person size of these tents, but A five-person tent is what you need for four people. I mean, unless you have small kids. Well, those
1: kids are going to grow, too, (laughs) at some point. (laughs) Okay, so tent, number one. Now, here's the thing. There are, of course, sleeping bags and inflatable pillows and sleeping pads to lay on, all that stuff. But, you know, if you're just starting out, bring your own bedding, bring your own pillows, you know, pad it with some down comforters. You can absolutely do that for free.
0: Well, yeah. I would err on the side of more bedding underneath you because even nice smooth campgrounds uh, there's always a root or a rock or something under there that uh, you're going to feel all night long so maybe an extra layer or two underneath you is great and also uh, depending on the weather it insulates you from the ground
1: yes absolutely now another really important thing is lighting because when you are in these campgrounds it gets really dark so just a couple of suggestions you're obviously going to want each person to have a headlamp and or a flashlight.
0: Yeah, and I, and we just buy the inexpensive, ever-ready uh, headlamps that we get them on Amazon, try to catch them on sale. They're not expensive. I would suggest to have extra batteries around because what happens sometimes, you pack these, the button gets hit while you're packing it and the thing's staying on until it runs out of batteries and you get to... the campsite and then then it's out of battery so have extra batteries with you
1: now you're also going to want to have some type of lantern probably two lanterns one that you can put on your picnic table and one that you can put inside your tent because you're going to want to have light you know let's say you're eating dinner and it's getting dark or you're in your tent and people are setting up their sleeping bags and they're getting on their pajamas you don't want to have to shine a flashlight on every little thing so having some general light from a lantern is really really good
0: yeah. And I would suggest a battery operated that was very popular years ago to have those like kerosene lanterns or whatever. I, I would just go with something battery operated.
1: Now, it's going to be key to find out what these campgrounds offer. What is in your campsite? Most of them have a picnic table and you know benches up against the picnic table. But if they don't, you're going to need some folding chairs to sit on and some kind of little portable table.
0: We have used the Lifetime 24-inch foldable table or something like that. You're going to find you need more room. Yes. Than the picnic table allows.
1: And the other thing, too, is most of these campgrounds, campsites, also have a campfire ring of some kind. One of the funnest things to do when you're camping is to sit around the campfire. So you're going to need to bring some kind of folding chairs to put around the campfire, or you're going to have to sit on the ground. You know, luckily, if your kids are little, you can get little tiny folding kids' chairs for almost no money. You might already have some at home. But definitely think about that.
0: You know, another thing uh, to go along with the picnic table is an inexpensive tablecloth. We get the red and white checkered tablecloths that you can get at outdoor stores. I think sometimes you can find them at Target. I don't know; they cost you know four or five dollars. The picnic table is gonna be filthy. Yes. The other thing is, you want a way to clean your hands. And I know this might sound like you know germaphobe, but it's not. You're out. You're out camping. You're in the dirt. Your hands are gonna get dirty often. So whether those are just disposable wipes or even um, you know, a small water container where you can set it up with a spigot and, and wash your hands, I think that's something that's important.
1: So let's talk about food and cooking meals. Now, first of all, if you are just getting started, you do not have to cook any meals, right? You could just bring food that doesn't need to be cooked. Maybe you bring sandwiches for dinner and some cereal for breakfast and milk um, and you know, and some little bowls. Like You could absolutely do it where you don't have to cook because if you're gonna cook, it's gonna require a couple of things.
0: Yeah, one option is the fire pits generally have a grate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the campsites will have a separate grill that's either wood or charcoal fired that you can cook on. Of course, you're gonna need something like a, a skillet to cook with, but you, you do need to make sure you check out whether or not that that campsite is under a burn ban or not. Right. Yeah, and these burn bans usually prohibit fires in the fire grates and in in the the grills.
1: If there is a burn ban, and if you would like to cook, you know we have this small camp stove. Was it just one burner, Matt, or two? It's a single
0: burner. It it looks like um, the old Coleman ones that that have two burners. Those are fine too. But we have a little one. It's easier to pack up. That has a single burner, runs on propane you know, almost anyone who's ever camped has a little two burner Coleman stove that you could borrow.
1: And those are great because then the possibilities of cooking are endless. One easy thing we did is we made quesadillas, you know, brought cheese, bought the tortillas, bought a little frying pan, then brought extra things to put on top like guacamole and stuff. We had like a quesadilla bar, which was super fun. You could also obviously heat up milk or water for hot chocolate. You, you could bring spaghetti in your cooler and heat that up. I mean, it's an endless possibility if you have one of those little uh, camp stoves.
0: Right. And if you're going to do that, then uh, think about either like paper plates, paper bowls, mm-hmm. or you can get little camping uh, mess kits that are usually pretty inexpensive. They're plastic and, and washable.
1: One more note, you absolutely need to bring a trash bag or two and you can find a spot to hang them at your campsite.
0: That's just a good thing for all the campers to know is that we have a trash bag, it's right there.
1: And then obviously, you're going to need a cooler, but most people already have a cooler. And, and one more tip is Matt has a lot of like Rubbermaid big plastic containers with lids that he puts our camping stuff in and then he labels them. So that's really helpful when you get to camp and you're trying to organize. So Maybe you have one for your bedding and you have one for your cooking things.
0: Right. I use the Action Packers from Rubbermaid. Uh, they're a little bit more expensive, but they have lockable lids so that uh, you know, if we're in, in an area with rodents or things like that, they're definitely not going to get in. The inexpensive Home Depot, Costco bins, if you seal that lid, rodents aren't going to get in that either.
1: Yes. And one more tip when you're booking these campsites online ahead of time, which you hopefully can do because some of those first come, first served are fraught with peril. <laughs> so hopefully you can book ahead of time. Look at the map. You want to have a spot that's somewhat close to the bathroom, but not right next to the bathroom. So there's a sweet spot in there.
0: Yeah, there is.
1: <laughs> and, you know, when you're there camping, it's fun. After dinner, we always walk through the campground. We like to look at everybody's site and see what they have. Have and, oh, my gosh, you'll just see all kinds of things that you can add to your list if the camping is something that you and your family are enjoying, you know, if it's something you're going to do again and again.
0: Yeah, and I would just uh, manage your expectations the first time because they're, you're going to find that maybe we left something off the list, right, that you really wanted or you wish you had. It is a learning experience. Everyone camps differently. And like you said, you can walk through the campsites, get to know people, see their setups, get a lot of great ideas that we didn't mention in this answer.
1: Okay. Thank you, Jason, for the great question. And good luck. Let us know how it goes.
0: (laughs) Okay, Karen, what's our next question?
1: This one comes from Susan in Des Moines, Iowa. And she wrote... When it comes to hiking, my husband and I think the National Park should consider adding another classification to the existing easy, moderate, and difficult descriptions, and here's why. We hiked the Primitive Loop and Arches a year or so ago, and we found it to be somewhat dangerous. My palms are sweating just thinking about our experience. You likely know the section I'm referring to where you're standing on a narrow ledge above a steep drop-off, and then you have to scramble up a steep, slick rock to continue on the trail. I had to have help getting up that part. We heard the next day that they found a woman's body at the bottom. This is the kind of trail that maybe should be labeled dangerous, in my opinion. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I do think there's a big difference between the strenuousness of a hike and how dangerous it is. You can have easy hikes that you know, if you step off the eggs, you're, you're a goner.
1: I think instead of maybe using the term dangerous, maybe a better descriptor would be treacherous. You know, those hikes where there are steep drop-offs and um, exposed edges and ladders and things. Because I do think that people want to know that ahead of time, especially if you're hiking with
0: kids. Right. And the other thing about the um, treacherousness of some of these trails is it sneaks up on you. You can be walking along a trail and all of a sudden you are on the edge of a cliff that could be a 100 foot drop off. And so you really need to be aware of your surroundings.
1: Yeah. And Susan, we know exactly the spot you're talking about on that primitive part of the loop. I don't know which direction you did it. We always do it clockwise. And so that really slick rock we're scooting down on our butts. But that is definitely, definitely a treacherous area right there.
0: Yeah, and I've found that going down those steep grades, like especially if it's like Slick Rock, it just seems much easier going down than going up. And that can be a problem if you're on an out-and-back trail. On that particular trail, yeah, going clockwise, it seems to be easier going down.
1: Anyway, I do think that, that would be um, that would be a good thing to have a treacherous classification. It is definitely different from strenuous. You know, to me, strenuous means steep, long. It doesn't mean exposed edges. So it is, we are talking about some different things there.
0: Yeah. Another word that rangers use a lot or, you know, people who are describing trails as exposed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant for a long time. Rangers said, well, there's some exposed parts. That means steep and dangerous. Yes. If somebody tells you that, well, there's an exposed area, that's code for treacherous.
1: Right. Because I think a lot of people might not be aware of that. All right. And so there was a second part to Susan's question, and she asks, the second part of my question has to do with the Grinnell Glacier Trail at Glacier National Park, which we want to hike this coming September, if you think this one wouldn't be considered dangerous.
0: Yeah, I don't think that trail is dangerous or treacherous. I don't remember any steep drop-offs. Now, there are always places on these trails in the mountains that if you step off the wrong spot, that could be bad. But I I don't remember a lot of exposed areas on that trail.
1: No, there aren't. And there's also no scrambling up Slick Rock like you did in Arches. Of course, that being said, you know, there is kind of a different type of danger there um, that you need to be aware of. And that would be that there are grizzly bears that frequent that area. So you absolutely want to have bear spray preferably you and your husband both have bear spray in an outside pocket of your backpack or on a belt loop, you know, so it's ready at hand.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of bears in the Many Glacier area, which is where Grinnell Glacier Trail is. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen them from the deck of the Many Glacier Hotel. There's also moose, bighorn sheep. Mountain uh, lions. There are mountain lions. We did that trail with John and Lolly saw a black bear.
1: Yes, we did.
0: So anyway, there a lot of people do that hike with no problems, no wildlife encounters. Right. Yeah, and the other thing is that I've seen groups say, well, one of the four of us in the group has bear spray. Well, that's great, but what if something happens to that person yes. who has the bear spray? What if they're in a situation where they're encountering wildlife and they can't get to the bear spray, the three of you have nothing. It's a good idea for everyone to have it
1: and practice. There's always a safety on the top that you have to flick off the safety before it works, so you might want to um, familiarize yourself with that too. And just in case you need it all of a sudden. Anyway, great, uh, great question, Susan. And you know, you bring up some really good points about how these hikes are labeled on the National Park Service websites.
0: Okay, Karen, what's our next question?
1: Okay, this this comes from Lee, or it could be Leah, L-E-A-H, and she wrote, My question is about our itinerary for the Washington parks. I know you've touched on them in other episodes, but I thought I'd see if I could get more info specific to our trip and timeline. We will fly from Pittsburgh on Friday evening, July 19th. We will be there until July 28th. And we have a friend in Seattle who is inviting us to stay with her as many nights as needed. But I wasn't sure if that's too far from the parks. We want to do Mount Rainier, Olympic, and North Cascades, and maybe one day in Seattle. Would you recommend that we stay near North Cascades for two nights to be able to experience that park? How would you recommend us to make the most of our
0: trip? Yeah, we get that question a lot. Uh, People come to Seattle. uh, They want to know where to stay. Those parks are close, but if you're going back and forth to the parks, that's a lot of driving to and from. So in other words, if you're going to North Cascades, you want to go for a couple of days, that's a lot of driving all the way there and back in one day, and then do it again the next day. It just doesn't make sense. You want to stay closer to North Cascades. And the same thing with Olympic National Park.
1: Absolutely. Those two parks are each going to take you between two and a half to three hours to get there. That's one way. And, you know, there's so many great hikes and other things to do. Sure, you absolutely could drive there in a day, do some stuff and drive back. I'm sure people do it, but we would not recommend it, especially when you're going to be here for that, you know, that that's a pretty good chunk of time. Definitely stay closer to North Cascades. Definitely stay closer to Olympic National Park. Now, the third one, Mount Rainier, you could stay at your friend's house in Seattle and, and do a day trip to Mount Rainier.
0: Right. So it depends on where in Seattle you're staying, but probably the heart of the metropolitan area to the south you're pretty close to rainier
1: yes when we do our day hikes at mount rainier we drive in we do our hike we drive home Uh, you know it's fun to stay in the park if we can ever get a reservation at, at the paradise Inn up at paradise that is so fantastic but of course that sells out a long ways in advance but two things to note you absolutely, absolutely want to get to the park as early as you can because in the summer there is a huge backup to get through these the entrance booths. And if you want to say, for instance, if you want to go up to sunrise, they do stop letting cars up once those parking lots are full.
0: That's right. We left for Paradise to go up to the Paradise parking lot one day at 9 a.m. from the campground in the park, and we kind of got like the last parking spot up at paradise. And so we were starting from inside the park. So if you're starting from, Seattle or, you know, suburb of the area, you got to get up early and get in the park as early as you can.
1: Yes, it will make a huge difference. The other thing too, is um, last summer, Matt Rainier talked about the possibility of um, having day use reservations in the future. They haven't announced anything for 2024. But definitely keep checking their website and see if they start that up for this summer, then obviously, you're going to have to get online and get a day use reservation or two. Um, yeah, so that's the breakdown for anybody who's coming to seattle uh north cascades and olympic are really too far to drive back and forth and mount rainier is can be doable if you want to save money on lodging and stay with your friend
0: okay Leah, i hope that helps f- with your trip to the seattle area and to see those three parks karen what's our next question
1: okay this one comes from caitlin and she um she dm'd us on instagram she wrote Hey guys, listening to your Glacier episodes over and over and trying to plan a trip in July next year. I wanted to ask about the shuttle system for going to the Sun Road. You were saying that you have to reserve a spot for those, but I'm struggling to see where those will be for sale or how much... All I'm seeing online is a free shuttle system, unless, of course, you're paying for the tour buses, like those red line tour buses. Do you still have to reserve the free shuttle ahead of time, or is it first come, first served? And do you know anything about the express shuttle that takes you straight to Logan Pass first thing in the morning?
0: Okay, so a lot of good questions there. I don't know the answer to any of those, so glad that you're here (laughs) with us, Karen. (laughs) To give us all the information, I'm curious, too. I have that same question, I, I but I didn't DM you.
1: You know, Caitlin, I'm really glad you asked this because, you know, we did those Glacier episodes, what, two years ago, and it has changed since then. So yes, back when we did it, you had to reserve the shuttle. Now it is first come, first served. So you don't have to make a reservation ahead of time. You just show up. You get on the next one that comes along. Now, here's the thing. We're talking about going to the Sun Road. The shuttles are at either end, right? So they are either at the Apgar Visitor Center or they are at the St. Mary Visitor Center, the two opposite ends of this going to the Sun Road. And then they make a lot of stops from that point when you get on up to Logan Pass. So if you want the non-stop, then you have to get on the express shuttle.
0: Yeah, and, and the first come, first serve, that's great doesn't require a reservation ahead of time. However, you still got to get there early because with first come, first served, there will be a line.
1: Oh, absolutely. There will be a line. And, and you know why there will be a line is because people know that the parking at Logan Pass is ridiculous. Everyone now goes in at 5 o'clock a.m. to get parking, and the parking lot fills up. And because people are hiking up there, whether they're doing the Highline Trail or whatever, they're, they're not turning over these parking spots quickly. So the parking is a nightmare at Logan Pass. And so the smart thing to do is to take the shuttle.
0: Yeah, and the shuttle's great. I mean, I, I generally don't like shuttles, but uh, some of these parks, uh, like Glacier or Zion, when they have a shuttle, uh, once you get on them, you realize this is pretty convenient.
1: It is convenient, for sure. And the most convenient, if you don't want to make any other stops, is that express shuttle. And so the details on that, the first shuttle... At Apgar departs at 7, and the last shuttle of the morning departs at 8.30. So if you want that Apgar Express one, it's between 7 a.m. and 8.30. They run, you know, a new shuttle is supposed to arrive about every 15 to 30 minutes. Now, if you're leaving from the St. Mary Visitor Center on the other side, the first shuttle departs at 8 a.m., and the last shuttle of the morning departs at 8.45. So a much smaller window, about 45 minutes there.
0: But those were the times of, of just the express. Just the express,
1: right. right. And they're small buses. They only fit 15 passengers. Yeah, it
0: seems like we were on one of those. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, we were. So the shuttle service, both the regular and the express, uh, they start on July 1st and they continue through Labor Day and we should say you know obviously if going to the sun road doesn't fully open until after July 1st then you know obviously it's not going to take you up to Logan Pass because it won't be able to get there
0: yeah that's a really good point because uh when that road opens is just dependent on how long it takes them to clear clear the road and in the past it's it's gone into July yes. it's gone past July 1st so, yeah, you got to check the website.
1: Right. But there is a great big parking lot at Apgar Visitor Center. So, yes, once you have, and again, I mean, there's so many things to think about. You still need your day-use reservation. You're not going to be able to get to Apgar Visitor Center unless you have your Glacier Day-use reservation because the entrance gate is before the Visitor Center. So you still have to get your reservation. Then you drive to the Visitor Center. You can park your car, pick up the shuttle from there. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great way to get to Logan Pass, but but as Matt said, I would definitely get there early because I'm I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of people who, who do that.
0: That's right. But the fact that you have to have a pass to get in the park, that's going to knock down the crowd some. That's true. Right. Yes. The lines are still going to probably be long. And maybe that's why they stopped doing the reservations because limiting the number of people who can actually get into the park is actually manage these lines.
1: That's true. Yeah. So, okay. All right. So good luck with all of that, Caitlin. And, you know, I love it that all of you are getting all your ducks in a row. We have such great questions because you all are doing your research and thinking of all these things ahead of time, which is so important so that when you get to the park, you know you can get to the place that you are hoping to see. People are on it, Matt. They
0: are on it. We should do an entire episode of just my questions. (laughs) My questions for you.
1: Okay, those will be at the end.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, but I think we still have some uh, questions from people that aren't me. We do, we do.
1: And this next one is from Bonnie in Medina, Ohio. And here's another one. She's she's getting her ducks in a row. She wrote, we're heading to Carlsbad Caverns in late February, and I'm a bit confused about the entrance requirements from the park's website. I see that we need to secure a timed entry ticket for the natural entrance tour and wondering if that's per person or by car and where you need to be by your chosen time. For example, the cave entrance, at the gates to the National Park, in the visitor center, etc." cetera. And then the National Park website continues, entrance fees into the cave must be paid inside the visitor center upon arrival. So I was wondering if our annual pass will cover those entrance fees. In short, I'm hoping you can break down the process step by step so that we can experience your favorite National Park, Karen.
0: Yeah, you know everything there is to know about Carlsbad Caverns, isn't isn't that true? <laughs> that
1: is true. Because here's the thing, and it is confusing because this is different than the Glacier and the Yosemite that we've talked about in that it's not one reservation per car like those are. It is per person. So it's really good that you're asking this, Bonnie. So here's the deal. You can look at it like this. The reservation is for the big room tour. So that's why every single person needs one. Even kids need one. Now, these reservations like all of the rest of them, are available on recreation.gov. They come up 30 days in advance, and you can buy them up to 5 a.m. Mountain Time, the day of your arrival. I would not wait that long because they do sell out.
0: So it sounds like what the park's doing is at 5 a.m., they know for the day who they're having on their tours.
1: Right. And the thing is, this is for the self-guided big room tour. And the reason that they are doing this is because before, all the times we've been there, You just show up, and as many people can go down and do the self-guided tour, I think they are trying to protect the cave. They're trying to limit the people to a certain number that they have decided is safe for the cave, and so that's why they have started this, you know, and they've been doing this now for a couple of years. Okay, so you need to get online 30 days ahead. Get your reservations. The cost on recreation.gov is $1 per person. Every person in your group needs one. Now, about the entry time, so it's going to ask you, you know, it's going to give you choices. Do you want 8.30, you know, 9, 9.30? The entry times are based on a 60-minute window beginning with your start time that you select. So if you select an 8.30 a.m. reservation time, you have an hour's grace period to get there. You must enter the cave between 8.30 and 9.30. So that's kind of nice.
0: But you then can stay in there as long as you want, right? It's it's not a time limit for being in the big room.
1: That is correct. You can stay in as long as you want. They are not going to kick you out. Um, Unless you
0: touch the rocks.
1: Right. Do not touch any of the cave formations. Okay, so a couple other things. So they're going to send you, once you book this on recreation.gov, they're going to send you a confirmation email for this self-guided tour. And you have to show them when you check in at the visitor center. But because cell phone coverage is really sketchy there, you might not be able to pull it up. So before you go, make sure, make sure you save it to your phone or you print it out or something so that when you get there, you can show it to the Ranger
0: these are pro tips.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I want everyone to be able to go to Crossback right,
0: And and these are things that it only took us like 30 or 40 times to to (laughs) get caught up on before we learned to do them. But that is a good one to copy it on your cell phone. You're not gonna be able to look it up when you don't have coverage.
1: Exactly. You can screenshot it and save it to your photos. That's what I usually do. Okay, so you asked about your America the Beautiful Pass. Yes, that is going to get you in. So here's what you're going to (laughs) do. You have bought your big room reservation ticket on recreation.gov ahead of time for let's say there's four of you. Okay, so you you have it and you have it saved to your phone, you go to the park, you park at your designated time up to an hour later, you go into the visitor center and you go up to the nice ranger there and you show him that and you pay the entrance fee to the park. Now this particular park costs $15 $15 per person for ages 16 and up, and 15 years of age and younger are free. If you have that America the Beautiful Pass, you and up to three other adults get in free.
0: Right. So just to be clear, the $1 reservation per person, you still have to pay that. Yes. And you bought that ahead of time. Yes. You're not going to get refunded for right. that. Right, But you and up to four people in your party, including yourself, get in free on the American the beautiful pass.
1: Right. Because there isn't going to be a gate that you drive through and show them your pass. This is going to be in the visitor center. So, yes, you can bring three other people. They can get in on your pass. But, again, so important to note that even though kids 15 and under get in free to the park, they have to have that $1 reservation so if you're bringing a six-year-old, a, a three-year-old, whatever, they have to have that day-use $1 reservation. So otherwise, your poor child is not going to be able to get in, and they'll have to sit in the restaurant and <laughs> That's right, just <laughs> and sit, color. Sit, sit there and,
0: <laughs> and, and color while, while we go to the cave. But what we don't know, and I'm just going to assume it's a four-person limit also, is if you're a fourth grader, because like fourth graders who have the fourth grade pass that normally in most parks... Like, the fourth grader and their entire family mm-hmm. in for free. I would imagine at this park, it's the still the same four person sure. thing.
1: Yes, for sure. And again, 15 years of age and younger are free. So if they have siblings, the siblings wouldn't have that $15 charge anyway. So yes, the parents would get in free and, and right. so on. I mean, right.
0: unless you're like 25 and you're still in fourth grade and then <laughs> <you> got, <laughs> some other issues. Yeah. You're, you Probably don't have three other friends, but that's okay. <laughs>
1: Okay, and one more note. Now, currently, they are also offering um, a tour, a ranger-led tour of the King's Palace, which is great. We've done it. We highly recommend it. So if you buy that tour on recreation.gov, you still have to buy that self-guided tour for the big room for a dollar. So getting the King's Palace tour doesn't replace this self-guided $1 tour ticket. So just Okay, know that. that's
0: kind of a big deal. It you, is a so big deal. So you get the King's Palace tour, you think you're taken care of. Yes. You also have to get the self-guided yes. tour for a buck.
1: Yes, and I even- And e- you have
0: to be in fourth grade to do all of this.
1: <laughs> I even emailed them because I thought it was very confusing. I emailed them and asked them that question specifically and they came back and said yes because, again, Matt, that $1 is for the big room. So just look at it that way. I mean – And you have
0: to go through the big room in Yes, <laughs> in you have, order to go on the tour. Yes, so, so – No one's going to get this right. Uh, yeah, it's well, just maybe some of our <laughs> listeners.
1: <laughs> so, Bonnie, let me look and see if I answered all your questions. So, again, so where do you have to be by your chosen time? You know, again, you've got an hour grace period, but you need to be – in the visitor center, there is a little bit of a drive from when you enter the park. Remember that, Matt. Right. The road, I do, I do remember. Yeah, that, the yeah. road winds up, so it does take a few minutes to get up to the visitor center. It's not immediate, so so give yourself plenty of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you clarified all this. <laughs> It is kind of confusing, isn't it? It is. All right, well.
1: All right, and Bonnie, if for some reason what I said wasn't clear or you have another question, email me.
0: Just tell them Karen Smith said it would be okay. Right, right. For you to tour the, the cave. All right. I see there's a couple more. Is there a couple more? questions in the mailbag there?
1: There are a couple more, Matt. All All right, this one comes from Christine, and she wrote, I got a passport book for Christmas last year and I've started collecting stamps. When I got my stamp at the Tremont Institute in Great Smoky Mountains National Park this summer, I was so surprised when the ranger asked me if I wanted the special stamp. Along with the normal Tremont stamp, he stamped my book with a salamander stamp that is also labeled from the Institute. Have you visited other park sites that have special stamps i'm curious to know if they are really rare or if a lot of the other sites have something similar
0: secret stamps
1: secret stamps
0: yeah i'm not big on the secret stamps you know we were at where were we? we were somewhere and it wasn't a ranger i think it was the bookstore employee they just like grabbed my passport and stamped a cactus right on it <laughs>
1: <And> I, <laughs> you were not happy i did not
0: did not like that
1: yeah yeah So we're the wrong people to discuss this, really, because we're purists. And when we got our passport and went to all the national parks, what you'll find out as you go to more and more parks is the the regular size, normal size passport book is not that big and it fills up quickly. So we just basically wanted the regular visitor center stamp with the date. To show that we were there because we felt like we didn't have room for all those fancy special stamps. Uh, no,
0: the the iguanas and mm-hmm. the cactuses.
1: But what we found out, Christine, is that many locations do have secret stamps that you need to ask the ranger, ask them if they have a secret stamp. And there are different reasons for this. And these are the ones that are kept, you know, behind the counter. And so for instance, some of them have been retired. You know, maybe it's a stamp that commemorated like a a certain anniversary, you know, the parks do the big 100 year anniversary, things like that. So maybe it's a retired stamp or maybe they have a stamp for a different location that is no longer in existence. There are definitely secret stamps and it would be fun for you since you're interested when you go to the park, just ask the ranger.
0: Yeah. And another thing is you should have your passport with you at all times because Sometimes you find places in the park that have a stamp. So for instance, we hiked down to Phantom Ranch in the Grand Canyon, spent the night, hiked back up the next day, and down at the bottom, there's a passport stamp that I never thought there would be. And I didn't realize there's a little teeny tiny ranger station. A lot of times the ranger's not there because they're out doing other tasks when they're when they're down there. But anyway, I didn't have my passport with me. But I did get something. I got like a piece of stationery or something. Got the stamp, and then I, now I've lost it because it's not <laughs> in my book. But that that would be a cool stamp to get, right? But you need to have your passport. Book I with know, it.
1: definitely always have it with you because you never do know when you're going to come upon a secret stamp. You know, it's funny uh, because this just reminded me that I have to tell you guys that um, a few weeks ago, so Matt has a three D printer.
0: Okay, so. <laughs> You're, if you whisper into the microphone, are you trying to you keep hear me? too many people from hearing you. No, or, I don't want you to hear you me. you want me? So he
1: printed out the special cover for his passport book from his 3D printer. And he made this hole in the cover where he put an Apple Air tag. It fit into this hole perfectly so that if he loses his passport book, he can always find it because it has this Apple AirTag right in the middle. So
0: why is that funny? <laughs>
1: <laughs> because yeah. it's a little OC
0: yeah, the the little AirTag snaps in it's perfectly, and it won't come out. And then it, I made it, the little holes, the binder holes, the same size as the original cover. Yeah, this is why I don't share everything with you, because <laughs> <laughs> you, la- you laugh at me. And then you know what happens next, folks? About six months later... You come to me, and then you you act like you always liked it, and then you want one. (laughs) And then I have to remind you now. I'm I'm glad we got it on on the recording that you laughed at me.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, for all the people who we've heard from who have uh, lost their passport book, or in one case, that woman in St. Louis had it stolen from her car, there is something to be said for that, for that little Apple AirTag, you would know where it was.
0: (laughs) You're backing up already, are you?
1: So, um, Christine, one more thing I wanted to mention, since you are into this, there is a National Park Travelers Club, that's what it's called, and this has all the passport stamp info online. The website is www.parkstamps.org, okay, so you go to that website, you have to, you join this group, I believe it costs $10 for the first year and $5 for subsequent years, but they have a huge database of, all the stamps, where they are. I think they talk about secret stamps. They have a forum where people can ask questions. So this is a whole stamp club for for people who are obsessed with getting the National Park stamps.
0: Do they have uh, custom-made covers with AirTag <laughs> holders? Hey, maybe you
1: could sell those on that, yeah. on that uh, no. website. No <laughs> way. <Wait. laughs>
0: nice. I'm not going to take any of your suggestions.
1: Okay. All right. But anyway, check that out because it might be great fun. And those... Those folks could tell you way better than we could where the secret stamps are.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Karen, we got any more?
1: We have one last question. I saved this one for last. This one is from Dory in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And she wrote, I have to tell you that when I see you have a new podcast episode, it makes my day. I so enjoy listening to you both. And I smile through these episodes. Thank you for all you do to entertain and inform us. My mailbag question is, have you ever looked into competing on The Amazing Race? You'd both be so much fun to watch. And I'm betting you'd also... Also do well. What do you think, Matt? The Amazing Race? <laughs> yes.
0: We're quitters. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure we would make it to the start. We also get distracted easily.
1: So, for any listeners who don't know what that is, it's a reality TV show. This season they have 13 teams and the teams are made up of two people. So it could be it could be best friends, it could be two brothers, it could be husband and wife, it could be, you know, any combination of two people who know each other, right? They go on a trek around the world and at every destination each team has to compete in a series of challenges. Some are mental and some are physical. And then when they complete certain tasks, they learn of their next location and then the first team to arrive at the final destination Wins the amazing race and Matt. There is a one million dollar prize.
0: I have a couple questions. Okay. okay. Do we have to eat bugs?
1: Um, maybe. I'm oh, not no. eating
0: stuff. No. I don't know what it is, or if it's still alive, or if it's a bug. Like I just don't. I, That's just life rules. That I, I live think
1: by. I believe the contestants have an option. Like you could eat these bugs, or, or you quit. Could
0: do this. <laughs> <laughs> we quit. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I would really like that $1 million prize. So I looked at the website to see what we would have to do to apply. And contestants have to submit a three-minute video with both, you know, both of them in it. And so this guy who's explaining it, you know, one of the producers of the show, he says, quote, it's a relationship show, end quote. So they want people who have a not just a good relationship but who have funny banter but one of the things he said is he goes tell me in the video who wears the pants in the relationship
0: (laughs) we know who wears the pants (laughs) yes we do (laughs)
1: You also have to tell each person's <laughs> strengths and weaknesses. I think we yeah, might get divorced just think, making the yeah, video. Yeah, three
0: minute audition <laughs> video. We didn't. We didn't get through the audition video. <laughs> uh,
1: no, I, I, don't,
0: I don't know about that.
1: Yeah, Dory, I don't know. Now, I mean, now that you mention it, you know, maybe it would be fun. I don't know if there, there's an age. Minimum, I think you have to be eighteen. I didn't see a maximum, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. We're, if we're pretty t- old. We are. We're I don't old. know if we're too old. We,
0: we um, might be.
1: All right, maybe we'll look into it. If I don't they want to just
0: give us a million bucks. We would do that.
1: You have to earn it, Matt. You have to earn it. Maybe that should be our goal for twenty twenty four: is to try to get into the Amazing Race. We could tell them on our video about our our goal of drinking water. Yeah, yeah.
0: We're gonna start with <laughs> water first. <laughs> We'll see how that goes.
1: That'll sell it right <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. If
0: we could manage to drink water, maybe we'll apply for the amazing race.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, Dory. Well, you know what? We're flattered that you thought we could do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks for the question, Dory. And thank you for all the great questions. Um, it's always fun to do this. And it's always fun for us to know what you guys are thinking about and interested in so if you happen to have uh, a question for a future mailbag the best way for us for you to submit that is, um, is to email us and that is at smith at gmail.com
0: that's, that's right we'll do our best to answer your question <laughs> hopefully <laughs> thanks for joining us today and as always a very special thanks to our Patreon supporters who help keep our podcast afloat We're currently working on a Patreon-only episode about all the trips we're planning to take in 2024, which includes some international travel.
1: I know, I'm excited about that. So if you'd like to receive these Patreon bonus episodes and financially support this podcast with a $5 monthly pledge, you can find the link in our show notes.
0: Happy New Year and happy hiking!
1: Yeah, be sure to drink lots of water. What is it, Matt?
0: The sixty-four ounce challenge dot com.
1: Sixty-four ounce water challenge.
0: Oh yeah, we should probably specify that. Yeah,
1: I think so. <laughs>